Well, I do want to thank the elder board and the deacons and uh, all of you for your uh, support and prayers that you're doing for me and for my family right now, lifting up to the Lord through this uh, road of suffering and uncertainty concerning my cancer. I remember right after I was saved, um, I came to what they called the large group meeting on Friday nights of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on the college campus, and when I arrived as a newly saved person, they all clapped for me and they all prayed for me, and it's a wonderful feeling. That was the first time I kind of had that sense with a whole group of people praying for me, and I hope you get that chance sometime in your life, maybe you have, where there's a whole bunch of people praying for you. It is a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Um, a number of you know and realize because you've gone through difficulties and you know that uh, the Lord works in a special way when there are large numbers of people praying together. I think it just comforts the heart. It uh, reminds everybody that your life is not all alone. There are other people standing with you. You're not in the battle you know, by yourself. Well, it's a rare occurrence when I get to preach on my birthday. I think it only happened once or twice before So as this day was approaching, I asked the Lord what maybe I should focus on. I sought his guidance um, concerning a theme and a text to preach on this unique day. Knowing I'm in the midst of potentially the greatest trial of my life and knowing uh, your sincere concern for me and for my family and wanting to know maybe what I'm thinking, what's going on in my mind. Um, I decided to do something I've never done before, so either you'll be happy you came out in the snow today or you won't, I don't know which it'll be. Um, I decided to uh, give an expositional testimonial message today in atypical fashion. I want to give a briefer, uh, that's hard for me, a briefer exposition of a text, more summary-like, and... um, let you know why this text has become precious to me over the last four years and maybe even more precious to me since the uh, cancer returned. So if you allow me a little latitude uh, this day, I want to kind of explain uh, this text briefly today and then let you know how it has impacted my my thinking and my heart. The text is Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 to 26. And I'm going to go back and begin reading at verse 19. But I'll be focusing on verses 21 to 26 and not really doing a phrase-by-phrase analysis of it, but giving some, some of the guiding truths that are in the text. So I'll start reading from verse 19 of Philippians 1. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. This is a great faith-building text, one of the wonderful texts of Scripture that grabs you right where you are and, and can can speak to anybody, really, because it shows us how to think about life and how to think about death. And it does it at the same time in such a short amount of space. It talks to us about fruitful labor and service in the world and why that's so worth it. But it also talks about the better thing, and that is departing and going and being with Christ. This beloved apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church, I think one of his favorite churches for the way they supported him in his ministry. He wrote it while he was in prison. He was in prison in Rome. This came after he had been bound and he had been escorted to, um, to Rome by Roman soldiers, uh, as the last couple of chapters in the book of Acts records. Scholars debate the location of the writing, but I think that uh, the imprisonment in Rome is the more likely location. The letter mentions in verse 13, if you look back there, the Praetorian Guard and also Caesar's household in chapter 4 and verse 22. The description of Paul's kind of imprisonment uh, in the book of Acts fits well with Paul's description of his situation in the book of Philippians. As a Roman citizen, Paul had appealed to Caesar, which he was allowed to do, in Acts chapter 25 and verse 11 when he was arrested in Jerusalem for not doing anything wrong. The Jews were just upset with him preaching Jesus. He was then imprisoned, and because his life was threatened, he was moved to Caesarea to protect and safeguard his life, where he spent a considerable amount of time. He knew he would either be set free, or he knew he would be executed when he got to Rome, but he went ahead and appealed to Caesar anyways, and all of this fits well being in Rome. And so the date of the writing of this book was around A.D. 61, after Paul's third missionary journey, but before his fourth. And you need to understand that there was a real possibility that Paul's life was going to end right about this time. Paul had no human control over what was in Caesar's hands, whether he would be put to death and the mode of death for a Roman citizen would be beheading or whether or not he would be released by Caesar. And yet there were believers like this Philippian church who were praying for him. And they were praying quite clearly for him to be delivered so that he could continue on with his ministry. The Philippian church had shown special concern for the Apostle Paul. They had uh, been concerned for his welfare, and you see him mention that in this letter. Indeed, they were praying very strongly that the Lord would spare Paul's life. But it is the private look into Paul's mind that caught my heart to see him reason between death and life, to see him do that with God's priorities as his north star, his guiding light. Faced with this life-threatening situation, Paul had four principles, four guiding principles that he reveals to the rest of us, and that's kind of our outline for today. First, Paul lived for Christ. Second, Paul knew that dying was gain. Third, Paul realized that living would bring fruitful labor for him. 
And then fourth, Paul was confident that he would live to do that work. So let's just go through this. First, Paul lived for Christ. If you go back to verse 21 and focus on that where he said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the most famous portion of this passage. The phrase in Greek literally is to live Christ, to die, gain. Just that, just like that. A beautiful statement with great truth succinctly stated. Really a testimony bringing clarity, instant clarity about what it means to live as a Christian and to die. The to me portion is up front in the sentence that shows he was making this his testimonial. Paul testifies that his Christian faith was unshakable. It didn't matter what he faced. Living was going to be great. Dying was going to be better. He knew exactly who he was. He knew what his life was about. Can you say that about your life? Back in verse 20, he also wrote, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Living, dying, didn't matter. He had one intent and purpose to exalt Christ. Dr. Homer Kent in the expositor's commentary points this out. No adverse decision from the court nor the alarm of his friends could alter Paul's firm belief about his present or his future. He knew who he was. He knew what he was doing. Paul's life found its total meaning in Christ. The essence of life for Paul was Christ. All Paul was about was what Christ was about. Everything Christ was about in the world, Paul was about. Christ's agenda was Paul's agenda. Christ was Paul's foundation. Christ was his present. Christ was his goal. For to me, to live is Christ. There was no purpose for his life apart from Christ. Some people tell us as Christians not to be so radical in our religion to kind of tone it down. Have you heard that? How can you not be but radical when you realize he is our breath and he is our life, right? There's no way we're ever going to be silent about Jesus or toned down. Anybody tells me to tone it down, I start shouting, at least as long as I have a voice. This striking statement in Philippians is similar to what he wrote in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, right? It's no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. All Christians, not just Paul, all Christians have Jesus as their life. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Isn't it great to know that one day we're going to actually see who you are? We don't know who you are yet. We kind of know it. We kind of see each other, but you're actually going to be revealed. You haven't had your coming out party yet, and that's going to be when Christ returns. Or what about Romans 14, 7 and 8? For not one of us, Paul writes, not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, and he concludes and says the obvious, we are the Lord's. We are the Lord's. Paul loved Christ. He obviously did. His ministry was all about Christ. He wrote in Galatians 6, 14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, If anybody doesn't love the Lord Jesus, let him be under an eternal condemnation, anathema, 
let him be under a curse. I mean, he loved Christ. Everything was about Christ. For Paul, life living was Christ. Second, Paul knew dying was gain. Dying used here in verse 21 is the normal word for physical death. It's in the aorist infinitive form. It, it's apothenesco. It just Im- implies by that aorist form that it's not so much, hey, I get to die. That wasn't what he was saying was gain. It's when you die, what state do you enter into? That is the gain. He wasn't excited about dying. He didn't view dying as anything more than a door to enter into a state in which it would be kerdos, gain, which is the opposite of loss. Most people think they lose when they die. The Christian gains. We have something to benefit by dying, unlike other people. People try everything they can do to keep from dying. He didn't. He gave his body as a sacrifice. It was okay. The consequence of dying is not loss of life. It's the transfer of existence from here below to there above. To be present with the Lord in the Father's house above. Doesn't sound so bad, does it? Death is not the loss of life in the Christian perspective. It is the gain of Christ's presence and of glory. Later in the same letter, Paul explains in Philippians 3, 7, whatever things were gained, same word, Wherever things were gained to me, those things I have counted, what did he say? As loss, right? All those things that I thought I had and I gained and were valuable to me, and you can think of all the things here in America we think are gained to us from our education and our houses and our career and our name and all that. He said, none of that matters to me. I count it all loss. Those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Death does not phase a Christ-focused, faith-filled, spirit-empowered believer. Polycarp, the disciple of John the Apostle in the second century, gave this testimony when they were about to burn him at the stake for his Christian faith. He said, you threaten me with fire which burns for a little while and is soon extinguished. You do not know the coming fire of judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Do what you wish. He had no fear. They would lose a death. They would enter into a fire that would never be extinguished. Polycarp, John, Paul, they knew it's just but a quick entrance into an eternal state, paradise. In the same passage in verse 23, Paul called death departing, departing, departing to be with Christ. Depart is the word analuo. It means to to unravel and loose, like you might have something that's tied or a boat that is there and you loosen and it's set to sail again. It's It's now loosened and it's allowed to go. It departs. That doesn't sound so bad. In fact, he says it's very much better. He emphasizes that. If you're going to compare down here to up there, he said it's very much better up there. I think he's probably right. It really doesn't sound so bad, does it? That's paradise. In Romans 8, 18, he said, I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, when we get there and we think about all the questions we're going to ask the Lord, Lord, why didn't you do this? And why did you do this? And I can't believe you did that. He's actually saying it's so great that when you get there, you're like, yeah, those were dumb questions. (laughs) Yeah, now I get it. I can't wait to see the Lord. I have a tough question for him. No, you won't. You get there, you'll be like, okay, I get it now. And I get this for eternity, okay, zip. Death is not the end. Death is not a disappointment. 
nor is death a time to fall asleep. Verse 23 is strong scriptural testimony against the false teaching of soul sleep. Listen, the only thing that sleeps when we die is our what? Our bodies, right? The soul instantly separates from the body at death and it flies to be with the Lord. In fact, it is likely that we're going to get an angelic escort according to Luke 16.22 where it talks about Lazarus who is at the gate of the rich man. It says two angels came and escorted him, grabbed both of his arms, I guess, and just took him along. Why do we need an angel escort? Because we don't know where we're going. And probably we have to cross over enemy territory. So there's spiritual battles that are going there. And, and the angels are there to make sure that the saints are guided. That's their purpose, the angels to look after the elect. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, it also adds that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. We don't go to sleep at death. All the passages that speak of dying and sleeping refer to the body. In James 2.26, though, it says, just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So the spirit separates from the body and the spirit goes back to be with the Lord. Stephen, and I know we haven't finished his sermon, we'll get to that eventually. In Acts 7.59, when he's being stoned, he said, Jesus, receive my spirit. I know it's about to leave. I know they're hitting my body with these rocks and my spirit's about to be dislodged from my body and I'm about to go. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 12 points out that at death, then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it? That reflection in Ecclesiastes 7.12 goes back to the way that God made man in the very beginning. He made him in two steps, remember? That's why we know we're a two-part being. He made the body from the ground, and then he breathed into Adam his own breath, so the spirit came from him, and then Adam became a living being. When the body dies, the body goes back into the ground from which he took it, and the spirit flies back to God because God gave the spirit. It goes back to God either for judgment or goes back to God for reward. This is not an encouragement to suicide, in case you were hearing me wrongly, obviously. Death should only come when God brings it. To take life, even your own life, is sin. It's an expression of doubt in God that you're living for yourself and not for the Lord. Death for true Christians is not designed to be an escape. Rather, it is an entrance into glory to be commended for the work that you have done and the faithful service you have offered. For the believer in Jesus, when God calls us home, death is merely a door, and it indicates the cessation of all of our work. We walk through that door, and what do we see? We begin to see things that are indescribable. We begin to hear things we're not allowed to hear in this world. How do I know that? Because I've been there? No, because Paul had been there. Paul said that he knew a man. Now, he's talking very humbly about himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, I know a man, whether in the body or out of the body, he didn't know because he had some crazy experience. And he went up into the third heaven. What does that mean? What we call heaven, past the sky, past the stars, to this other dimension. And he said, that man heard things that are not allowed to be spoken. That's the kind of dwelling it is. It is a land above. It's an entirely different dimension of existence. It has unfathomable riches imperishable inheritance for all of us, joys beyond understanding in the presence of our maker who knows exactly how to make us happy, we will dwell in that place in peace, awaiting patiently the resurrection of our bodies. Don't ever forget the importance of the resurrection of our bodies. And then we will return, once resurrected, we will return according to Revelation 19, following Christ who is on that white horse, will be clothed in white robes and we will return back down to earth, as it says in Revelation, to reign upon the earth with Christ.
In heaven we will be glorified. And Paul was right that it was very much better. Very much better. Do you see why Paul said, I'm hard pressed in both directions? He says, I don't know which to choose. That's kind of funny, as if he's the emperor and he's going to make the decision. He has no control over which to choose in one sense. In another sense, he completely was disregarding whatever authority the emperor had and said, I don't know which one to choose. If you're praying for me, I don't know which one to choose. Humanly speaking, I can do nothing about Caesar's decision, but prayers overrule even the decisions of Roman emperors. And so he said, I'm hard-pressed in both directions. To him, it was a win-win situation. Living is Christ. Dying is gain. Where's the loss in any of that? And then third, Paul realized that living, though, would bring fruitful labor for himself. Verse 22. Fruitful labor is what the Spirit of God blesses. Fruitful labor is that which results in the transformed lives of people. Fruitful labor is starting new churches for him as an apostle, extending the kingdom of Christ further. Paul was called to be an apostle. He was called to do fruitful labor. Before Paul was an apostle, Jesus spoke to the other apostles in John 15, 16, and he said to them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. It would stick. All apostles were supposed to bear fruit. That was their calling in life. All Christians are to bear fruit. You are to bear fruit. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. That's why God recreated you in Christ that you would accomplish good works. Paul knew living longer would allow him to establish more churches, allow him to refute more heresies, allow him to write more scripture, which, by the way, he did. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, what we call the pastoral epistles that came later after this. Paul knew that he could go back to churches he had already established and strengthen them and clear up confusions for them, allow them to be better, better founded. Paul knew that he could exhort them to continue on in labor for Christ. Paul had a calling from Christ. He knew with that calling he had to fulfill that calling. He said in Acts 20, 24, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may, listen, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord, the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. I just want to finish my ministry, he was saying. My life I don't care about. I just want my life to last long enough to finish my ministry. That's what he was saying. Dr. MacArthur brings out this insight. He, he, says, he wrote, part of spiritual greatness is to know Christ intimately and to long to be with him. But spiritual greatness also includes being totally committed to the advancement of the kingdom and serving Christ on earth. And so Paul wanted to be a blessing to the people. He wanted to work fruitfully. He wanted to help the Philippian church and other churches. And that leads us to fourth. Paul was confident that he would live to do that work. His conclusion is in verse 25. Look at it. Where he writes, and these are the words that just hit me between the eye. He said, convinced of this. Convinced of what? That fruitful labor is what God still wanted for his life. He was convinced God had more for him to do. 
Now remember, he has no control over what the emperor is going to decide, humanly speaking. But he said, I'm convinced of this. Earlier in verse 19, he also wrote confidently, for I know, I struggled with that, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. What an amazing statement. What confidence. Those are both strong statements. Convinced of this, for I know. He said in verse 24, to remain on in the flesh that is in his body was more necessary for their sake. See, his work was not yet done. He knew that. Again, I quote Dr. MacArthur. He points out, as long as the Lord had work for Paul to do on earth, that is where Paul wanted to be. What makes Paul, what makes Paul being convinced that he would live on was particularly encouraging to me is that Paul did not receive a revelation from God that he was going to live. That was very important to me because I don't get any revelations from God about my life. I don't get any. I don't get one. I don't get a special dream that tells me whether I'm going to be here or be there or do this or do that or live this long or not live that long. No prophet revealed anything to Paul. The Spirit of Jesus did not tell him anything at this time about whether he was going to be released or whether he was going to die. He had no special direct revelation from God. You need to understand, we're talking about Paul. Paul the apostle, all the apostles were prophets. Paul was many times given direct guidance from Christ. When he was in Corinth, Jesus appeared to him in Acts 18 and 10, Acts 18, verse 10, and said, keep preaching the gospel. There are many more in this city that are mine. What he meant is they are, they're chosen of God and they will come to faith. Keep going. So he knew, I'm supposed to keep preaching here and not quit. In his second missionary journey, he wanted to go into the province of Asia. And it says the Spirit of God spoke to him and said no. And then he got a vision. Remember the vision of Macedonia? And they said, come here. And he got a vision. Okay, this is where I'm supposed to go. And he followed that vision. He knew where to go. He didn't have to guess. There was a time where he was heading to Jerusalem and Agabus, the New Testament prophet, came and bound his hands and said, this is what's going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem. So he knew. And he didn't care, by the way. He said, I don't care whether they kill me in Jerusalem. It's where I'm going. We think prophets and apostles always had the Spirit of God talking to them and telling them every little thing that was happening in their life. No, that was was more common, obviously, for them, but it was not that common after all. And, of course, we know about his original vision on the road to Damascus in Acts 9 where Jesus said, you're going to bear my name before many. But not this time, not in this prison, not with this threat of the sword Severing his head, not in this situation. Here Paul had to reason the way we have to reason, the way I have to reason, without direct revelation from God. And that made this passage particularly important to my mind because it shows that God sometimes communicates his will to our spirits by allowing us to put together a number of different factors in our lives, our giftedness, the work that we have, the passions that are in our mind, 
the needs that are present, where one is in the midst of work that is going on. It shows a confidence can arise as we, we struggle and try to understand what on earth is God doing in our lives. When external circumstances seem to be stacked against the thing that you thought that God called you to do. When one set of circumstances doesn't fit another set of circumstances, how do you reason through that? Again, I'd like to quote from Dr. MacArthur. Because Paul had just expressed uncertainty about whether he would live or die in verses 22 to 24, it seems that his being convinced reflects his personal conviction rather than a revelation from God. Had God told him that he would not die until he finished his work, his living or his dying would not have been an issue for discussion. Paul was convinced that the church still needed his instruction and his leadership, end quote. Indeed, Paul was right. This sense that he had in his mind was correct. We know that Paul was released from the prison in Rome, and we know he went on his fourth missionary trip and strengthened churches and launched out into new areas for the gospel. And then he ended up back in Rome a second time. And then his life was ended some five years later under the Neronian persecutions. Only some five years later could Paul say as he looked into his heart, his work was done. Only five years later could he write that very thing to Timothy in the last book and the last chapter that he ever wrote on this planet, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and then verses 6 and 7, he wrote, I, have already, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and then he wrote this, the time of my departure has come. He knew it. But then he said this in verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And he went on to speak of what was waiting for him when he got to heaven. Only then did Paul know his work was done. Only then was his course finished. Only then did his inner spirit perceive the time of my departure has come. But not here. He didn't sense that here. Here he knew in his heart There was remaining work that God was leading him to do. And he knew from the earnestness of the prayers on his behalf that that request was going to be answered because that work was not done. There was more important fruit to bear. In no way do I compare the importance of my life to the great Apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles on which the whole Gentile church is founded on his work, the work of the apostles. I wouldn't even want to hold a candle next to the bright light of the apostle Paul. I just find comfort and guidance in the way he worked through his life-threatening situation, this conundrum in ministry. Like all of you, I never received the Damascus Road experience when I came to Christ. Um, And if you think you did, I'd like to talk to you about that after the service Like all of you, I don't receive, you know, blow-by-blow instructions as to who I'm going to do this with or where I'm going to do that or any of those things. I'm just like you. 
It took many, many years of service uh, through the campus ministries within varsity on college campus, serving in a number of capacities, fighting against sin, struggling to understand doctrine, figuring out who I am, knowing there was something that God wanted me to do, but being somewhat convinced back then I'm not going to be a pastor, maybe I'll be an evangelist. And then going off to seminary and studying and absorbing lots of scripture and volunteering in church and day camps and overnight camps and Awana and Christian schooling and Sunday schools and teaching adult Bible studies and being on Christian ed committees and moving furniture and being in missions and going to missions conference and a whole variety of exposure to ministry. All of those little things put something inside of you. They put something awareness as to who you are. When you're younger, you're still trying to figure that out. As you go along the way, you define yourself more and you know what you're good at. People give you feedback and you know you're not very good at this, you know, but boy, were you a blessing here. And when more people keep saying those kinds of things, Tom, you should be a pastor, you start listening to that. Your mom and your wife and your mother-in-law and other friends that know you and they say those kinds of things and you put all of that together. So off we go to the master's seminary and at seminary I knew one thing, I wasn't coming back to Maryland. It's because my emotions didn't want you know, to come back to Maryland at that time and I knew I couldn't start a church. I had no, I had no skill in that. I wasn't a particularly great evangelist. But we prayed and we listened. I would spend many, many days up in the mountains, literally praying and fasting, taking a little notebook, writing things down in a journal. This is how you evaluate yourself and try to understand who you are. Worked at the Filipino church as a youth pastor and preaching and doing street evangelism and um, getting into all kinds of scary situations. But it was part of how, what God was building into my life. And working with Awana out there and working with the fundamentals of the faith and ministering in one of their communities, all that input, meeting different people, having them talk to you, continuing to pray, evaluating what your passions are, reading a lot of Dr. MacArthur's books, being challenged by Professor Montoya about church planning, listening in chapel, listening to sermons, all of these things, you can't really know how that impacts your spirit, how that impacts your thinking. But as you go along through time, as that river, keep, that river of life keeps bringing you along, you learn more. You gain deeper and deeper convictions. You, you grow in your confidence to do something, a vision of what needs to happen with churches and why the churches are not healthy and what they need to help them get back on track. All of that builds slowly over time. There are moments that are acute and they bring a, a sharp thought to you and then there are just others that I think quietly come along. Well, all of that happened to me. And uh, as I listen to the people that were giving input into my life as I tried to make excuses with my fears about things. Um, I remember chasing after Professor Montoya. I've shared this testimony before. After one of the chapels and seminary, and I, he was the church planning pastor. His church had planted some 20 churches in the uh, uh, L.A. area, many of them Hispanic churches, and he'd just done a great job of funneling 100 people out of his church here and 100 people out of his church there and 10 miles down the road there with another 100 people, and that's their strategy that they had. And I knew he knew about church planning, and I knew I knew nothing about church planning, and I came chasing after him one day, and I said, Professor Montoya, how many, how many people do you need in order to get a church going? I was hoping he would say something like 100 or 50. And he turned around, I don't know if he was in a bad mood, I don't know what happened, but he looked at me in, in that special accent, if you've listened to him before, you know, he said, you don't need any families. 
If the enemy's on the hill, you take it. And of course, that's exactly what I did not want to hear. <laughs> but it's one of those moments that it hits you between the eye and you realize you're trying to avoid something because you're afraid. And you continue to listen to God. What is his calling? What, why do I have this vision? I, I wouldn't have this vision of a biblical church that would teach other churches, that would start other churches, that would spread. I couldn't come up with that. That's the input of many, many men and many, many women and the word of God in my life over a long period of time. It's a conviction that runs very deeply in me. Some people think they know me, but if you don't know that about me, you don't know me. That, that's the core of who I am. I've been given a ministry. God gave this ministry to me to start a church that would believe in the sufficiency and the authority and the power of Scripture, have a high view of Scripture, a high view of God, and then work that out from the pulpit into all the ministries and then to start more churches like that and where people were willing to listen to show them how that, their church can also not make compromises with the Bible but believe all of Scripture, to not get caught up as many of the conservatives do in small things and they, they end their ministry because they have all these little convictions rather than having big convictions about big things and to be able to show what's important and what's not important. And I'm not saying that our church is better than other churches or that we do things better than other churches. There are many churches that do evangelism better than us and missions better than us, and we have a lot we can learn from other churches. But we know what our aim is. We know what we're shooting at. We know what we're asking Christ to help us become by His grace. We know that. And we know and we prayed for the region, and now the Lord has brought other people. And I guess what I'm saying to you is that in my heart when I pray... I cannot say that my work is done. I cannot say I've finished my course. I cannot say the time of my departure has come. That's not in me. Uh, That's not even close to being in me. I don't understand why I have cancer. I'm willing to accept anything from the hand of the Lord. If the Lord takes me this year or next year, I will have more joy than you because I will be in a better place than you. But I do have a firm and deep conviction that the Lord wants me to remain at least for a few more years to finish the course that he gave me because I think that there's a wide open opportunity for ministry here. And if you really ask me what I think, I don't even think we've gotten halfway to what the Lord wants us to do. And so that's, I hope, an encouragement for you in your prayers to know how to pray for me and Susan. Um, I'm not a quitter. I don't give up. Um, I'm not afraid of dying. That's not why my prayers are directed that way. I just am very excited about the fruit that the Lord has laid before us. I see a lot of young men in here. I want to spend time pouring into it. I so appreciate Pastor Allen and his years of walking this long and hard road and some of the other men in our church that have walked this long and this hard road with me. I love you guys. I believe in the work that the Lord has given us to do, I believe in his power. I don't care that I have pancreatic cancer. It doesn't mean anything to me. I don't think that's better than, bigger than an emperor. And I believe I'll be delivered through your prayers. And if I'm not, I'm ready to accept that. But if I am, I think the Lord has something special to do through you, much more than through me. Because God is great, is he not? For me to live is Christ. Say it with me. For me to live is Christ and to die 
is gain. Heavenly Father, we hope that we've glorified you this day and that anything that happens in our lives, in my life, would, be a, would bring glory to you because you are the great one and you are life itself. And we love you. We love your word. We love the fruit that we can bear. We're amazed that you allow wretches like us to bear fruit for eternity. You're an amazing God. And we bless your name in the name of Christ, the name above all names. Amen.